Our next Old Testament lesson is going to come from the book of 1 Kings. From 1 Kings chapter 17, we're going to read verses 8 through 16. 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16. I invite you to follow along in your own personal Bible or in the, your pew Bible in front of you or on the order of worship on the back. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Now go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. There, when he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel, so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering together a couple of sticks that I may go home and prepare it for myself and for my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she was as well, so that she as well as her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord. That he spoke to Elijah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I was blessed a few weeks back uh, to, to go with Thomas and his, uh, his team, his robotics team for Madison Crossing. Uh, I was blessed to go with all the Madison County schools as a chaperone, the elementary and middle schools, to go to the to the National Robotics Competition in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Uh, we, our kids, you know this, but where we live, our children are so blessed with so many different opportunities. Opportunities that many of us didn't have growing up. Uh, growing up at Bogachita, I don't think we had any computers in the school. And honestly, I'm still not sure that we do. I don't really know. Wouldn't surprise me if we didn't. Uh, so, um, but our kids today have so many opportunities. And part of this was Thomas got to go with his teammates to Iowa and compete in the National Robotics Competition. So it was so cool to watch him and his buddies. They get their little joysticks and drive the little robots and pick up the little rings and deposit them and things like that. And Thomas was a programmer, so he programmed in what the robot should do, and it wound up doing what it was supposed to. And I, I think I was more excited than he was whenever his thing did right. You know, you know how parents are. We're, you know, we're more excited for their victories than they are. But it, it was such a neat experience to get to go with him and his friends and his team and, and see all this. It was such, such a treat. But... That meant we got the joy on the Monday after Easter. If you know anything about preachers, typically the Monday after Easter. If you know, if you know a preacher real, real well, go up, to, go up to them the Monday after Easter and just look at their, their ears, and you'll actually see their brains leaking out if you look really closely. 
So the Monday after Easter, we left at 5 o'clock in the morning to travel 16 hours straight, except for occasional potty breaks and dinners. There was a bathroom on the bus, but none of us were that brave. Um, And so we traveled straight to Iowa for the competition. And so, you know, I had my, my books to read and my podcast to listen to, and I had all this stuff ready to do, but there's only so many books you can read and only so many podcasts you can listen to. And I don't sit still well. So I like, I, at one point I wanted the bus driver just to let me out and I could run along beside the bus for a little bit just to get some, to get some blood flowing. I needed to do something. So I'm sitting there stir crazy with read everything I wanted to read, and we were barely in Memphis. You know, what are, what are we going to do now? So typically, when I travel, it's been overseas to Israel, and, you know, you're kind of stuck without your phone. Well, I had my phone, and I had, you know, internet access and all that, and pretty good cellular service. I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to stream a movie. I'm going to, so I've never, you know, I've never, uh, you, you can't do that when you're flying, so I'm going to stream a movie. So I began to look and see, what did I want to see? What movie did I want to see? And, um, and I thought, what did I miss in the theater? So I, I, never, I had never seen Dunkirk. You know, y'all know my man, Crust, on Winston Churchill. And you know that all of my favorite historic people tend to be British. John Wesley, Churchill, Doctor Who, you know, all the famous historic characters are all British and so I said, I want to see Dunkirk because I didn't see it in the theater. And so I'm sitting there, you know, I got my phone out watching it, you know, kind of, wa- and, and, it just doesn't, and it doesn't capture, you know, like this little bitty phone doesn't capture the, 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 the grandeur that the filmmakers had. So it was, it was wonderful, but I could imagine how much more wonderful it would have been, you know, um, watching it in the theater. And that movie is a great kind of bookend uh, to the Darkest Hour that came out last year because it kind of tells the story of Dunkirk from different perspectives. Um, if you aren't familiar with that, if you aren't a history nerd, you need to become one because history is awesome. But um, it's a story of how during World War II, basically the Nazis had routed Europe. And there in Dunkirk were all of the British and French forces. And they were completely and utterly trapped. And can you imagine being a wife or mother in London and knowing that your loved one is there across the pond, across the channel? You can almost see them. You could almost see Dover, you felt like, from Dunkirk, knowing that they were there trapped. Can you imagine? being the military official whose men were entrusted to your care, knowing that you were trapped and there's nothing you can do. Can you imagine being Churchill, one of the leaders, knowing that your army is fixing to be captured or killed and there's no way you can continue the fight? Can you imagine being one of those soldiers on the beach as the, as the planes dive bomb and start shooting and all you can do is duck down hoping that they miss. Can you imagine being in one of the little boats going out to one of the larger ships as a sitting duck? And you hear off in the distance the engines of the plane coming and you're praying, oh Lord, please let them miss because you are utterly defenseless. Can you imagine that fear? 
Can you imagine that darkness? Can you imagine that hopelessness of knowing that you are trapped and there's literally not one thing that you can do about it? That's where they were at that moment. And that's why when you watch The Darkest Hour, you realize, wow, you know, it was such a miracle that they were able to send over all the small boats to France and ferry them all back. And Churchill was hoping to get 30,000 men back and instead got nearly his entire army. It was such a miracle. He had to go to Parliament and say wars are not won by retreats. They were so amazed that they had been spared. But what a dark, what a dark moment to feel like you're trapped with nothing you can do. One of the mistakes we can do with Scripture, I believe, is we can read it and not really pay attention and not really listen or or, or understand what's happening and read it like we've read it so many times before, not listening with new ears. Because there's things in Scripture that if you sit back and listen to them are stunning. Like I think of Job's wife. Go back and look at the story of Job and his wife and how she has that great, uh, I guess she only has one line in Scripture, and her one line is this. She looks at Job in the midst of everything falling apart, looks at Job and says this, which I've yet to ever find on a Hallmark card, curse God and die. There's no curse God and die section at the Hallmark store. I've yet to find that one. You're like, ooh, that's harsh. You probably shouldn't say that. But then when you realize she lost all that she had, she had nothing, she had nothing. And everything that Job lost, she lost double. Everything that Job suffered, she suffered double because she was defenseless and hopeless. And so her entire world had been destroyed. And so she responds out of a place of agony and out of a place of hurt and out of a place of pain and maybe doesn't have the most charming answer. But her world had been crushed, and that's all she could muster. When you read it, you can almost, if you listen, hear the emotion. Listen to today's reading. Listen to today's reading. This widow is there gathering together sticks to make a meal. She's gathering together. And here comes Elijah and says... Give me some water. And she does. And then he asked for a meal of cake. And did you catch what she said? Did you catch his response? She says, sir, I can't do that. Because I only have enough left for me and my son. I'm going to go home and I'm going to make it. And then we're going to die. Talk about hopeless. Talk about a lost cause. Talk about a lost case. It's one thing to say, I'm going to starve to death. But she says, no, no, no. I'm going to make this meal. Then we're going to go home. And then me and my child, we're going to die. Now, she's a widow, and she's a survivor. 
causing that culture to be a widow meant that you were completely and utterly defenseless. That's why the church is commanded in Scripture to take care of the widows and the orphans because no one was there to defend the widows and the orphans. As a widow, she had no hope. As a widow, she had very little means to even survive. So she is literally at her lowest and at her worst. And she says to Elijah, I can't. I'm going to take what little I have. I'm going to prepare it for me and my son. And then we're going to starve to death. This child entrusted to me by God, I can't provide for him. We're going to die. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine as a parent being at that place? Being at that dark of a moment? One of the things that's cool to do with the Bible is to kind of take a step back sometimes and see what's happening. Because when you take a step back, you see things that others might not see, especially the widow. Because this widow sitting there thinking she is preparing her last supper, preparing her last meal for her and her son. But what she doesn't realize is that Elijah's presence was not coincidence. Elijah's presence was not happenstance. He wasn't there for any random reason, but he was there because he was sent by God. Elijah had been sent by God in this moment. And I think one of the mistakes we make about this text is this. We understand that this woman fed Elijah so that he could live. But I think that's missing the point because here's the deal. Elijah was a prophet of God. He could have found food in a variety of different places. God could have sent him to a variety of different people. This encounter was not about saving Elijah's life. But this encounter was about saving that widow's life. This encounter was about saving the life of this widow's son. The miracle here is not that Elijah lived. He was the man of God, called by God for great things. God was going to take care of him. The miracle was not that God spared Elijah. The miracle was that God spared and saved the life of this widow and her child. But here's the hard part. You know how God saved the life of this widow and this child? He called the mother to do something so radically counterintuitive. Your son there that you love, you know how you're going to save him? You know how you have enough food to eat? and survive you're going to give away your last bit of food to this stranger you're going to give away your last bit of life 
to this stranger. You're going to serve this man who you don't know from Adam's house cat. You're going to serve him, and you're going to give it away. And in this act of service, you're going to find the provision for your life. And letting go of this thing. Because here's the thing. This widow, this widow was a survivor. In, a, in that culture, to be a widow and to survive meant that you know how to fight and claw and survive. So to, to, to let go of this food, that was insane. Why would she do that? This food was going to be the only thing that might keep her child alive for one more day. A fighter doesn't give up. A fighter doesn't give in. Because a fighter so often wakes up with that deep, that deep ball of fear in their stomach. Because they don't know what the future holds. They don't know what is to happen. So God calls this widow not to let go of her food, which is part of it. Let go of that fear. Let go of that fear and trust. Even when the road of trust looks like a road that you do not and will not walk down, let go of that and trust. The widow had to let go of her, not just of her food, but let go of her fear. Let go of her fear and trust that God had a plan even when she didn't see it. But the only way, the only way she's going to understand that plan, the only way she's going to live is to serve. See, that's one of those, I think the scriptures have kind of overarching themes and narratives to them. And one of the themes that I see when I look at Scripture is this truth we see in the widow. If you want to live, you got to serve. One of my favorite scenes is in the New Testament. The first miracle Jesus performs when he turns water into wine. The Scripture is kind of funny if you look at it. Because Jesus goes and does all this, and the scriptures are very clear. As Jesus is turning the water into wine, the bride doesn't know what's happening. The bridegroom doesn't know what's happening. The chief steward doesn't know what's happening. No one knows what's happening when Jesus is performing this miracle. The only person, only people who understand what Jesus is doing when he turns water into wine are the servants. Because over and over in that story, it says they didn't know what he was doing, but the servants knew. They didn't understand, but the servants knew. For this widow to survive, God had made a way of life for her. God had provided a way for her to live. But for her to live, she had to serve. I wish I could say today's sermon 
was inspired by some grand treatise of John Wesley or C.S. Lewis or Thomas Aquinas. But as I prepared this sermon, there was a theologian who kept speaking to me through his words, the great theologian Bob Dylan. You've got to serve somebody. You might be an ambassador. You might be a rock star. You might be a socialite with neck pearl necklace. But you've got to serve somebody. Now, it might be the devil, or it might be the Lord. But you've got to serve somebody. If your faith is dead now, if the fire in your soul has gone out, let me ask a question. When was the last time you served somebody? Not not served somebody that deserved it because Elijah didn't deserve it to this woman. What had he done to justify her doing anything? Nothing. She didn't know Elijah from anybody. Elijah had done nothing to justify this widow serving him. When was the last time you served somebody hoping for nothing in return? So often we serve knowing we're going to get something back from it. When's the last time you served somebody not bargaining with God? God, if I do this, you can do this, right? If I, do, if I tithe, you'll do this, right? Or if I give, you'll do this, right? Or if I serve, you'll do this. And so our, even our acts of service become a bargaining with God. And then what happens is we do it, and things don't work out sometimes. That's why I tell folks I'm not a big fan of the whole Christian fairy tale genre. Because sometimes you get saved and you still get fired. And God is still God. When was the last time you served someone for no other reason than they were made in God's image and they had a need? If you want to find life, we've got to follow the path of this widow. She served. In her act of service, God made a path of life for her. Now, what do I mean by service? It might be something in the church. Maybe you're called something here. Maybe the Lord's been laying something on your heart for weeks, months, or years about serving his body, the church. Maybe it's a means to serve in our community through an organization like Madcap, through the Methodist Children's Home. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you and your spouse have been fussing recently. Do something nice for them wanting nothing in return and see what happens. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your enemy. I don't know. But if we will take a step back 
And if we will listen, we will hear the call of our Savior calling us to live and calling us to life. And that path of life over and over and over again in Scripture comes through service. We've got to serve somebody. Today, in God's grace, where will we serve? For it is the path that leads to life. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your gift of love and your gift of the call to service to us, Father. Help us to serve you in all of our life, God. Help us to know you and love you and lead others to you. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name. Amen.